0: Welcome to the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. Your hosts are Alex Pachuk and John Massey. We have conversations with folks throughout the tech industry to get real-world perspective on how people make things happen for their careers and businesses. Check out pragmatically.com for more content just like this. All right, Alex. Awesome. Good morning. Hey, John. What's going on? Hanging out. All right. So today we want to talk about the recent article that you published on dealing with technical debt. Yep. Now, we've we talked about this a little bit back and forth while you were working on this piece. And we thought to spend a little bit of time to kind of deep dive into it and have a conversation around technical debt
1: yeah yeah so it's a painful topic for everyone and anyone who works with software at some point in their career they will be working and struggling with technical debt what is it how to deal with it so it's a kind of interesting topic that people experience all the time so yeah it's 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 necessary to
0: talk about it time to time for sure so Technical debt, Alex, and this is something I thought about recently, is kind of an invisible debt, right? Like if, okay, so I'm a programmer, I'm working with a designer and a product person, we have zero software right now, and now we're going to start making code. I think I'm making a product, I think I'm doing a good job, my program is working, Uh, but but at some point, uh, the debt, right, debt starts to accrue. But we don't see it. It's not like uh, you're using a credit card and then you can look at your statement at the end of the month and know how much debt you've created for yourself. Right, right. right? So yeah, the,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the, the first challenge with technical debt, just talking about technical debt is how do you measure technical debt? It's, mm-hmm. it's different for every product, every company, every team, how they go about measuring and kind of thinking, reasoning about technical debt. It's different for everyone. But it's important, like with everything that you try to improve, you start with the baseline where you are right now. So you can kind of measure your results. Are you actually making any difference? So yeah, measuring technical debt is one of the challenges. And that's pretty much where you have to start uh,
0: with. So, you know, you and I, we've been building stuff for a little while now. My, My attitude towards software has changed a lot since the, you know, my early days of my career. And I feel like I want to avoid creating things as much as possible for the sake of keeping the amount of things I need to be concerned about in the future down.
2: And that's something that I think about.
0: Is that like...
2: Right. So So as
1: soon as you start building anything, you're pretty much going into technical debt. So, you start with this, like, it always feels kind of really cozy and, and warm, like when you start building something new, like it's a new clean slate, you kind of like start with a blank screen um, in, your, in your editor and you start just adding stuff. And as, this, as soon as you start adding stuff and you're shipping stuff, you're going into technical debt because as soon as you ship something, it becomes outdated. Now you're going to start adding new features, business requirements, updating stuff, um, libraries become outdated, uh, security um, issues arise. So you, you start getting into technical debt pretty much as soon as you ship something into production.
0: So I definitely agree with that. So you talked about measurement. Now there's different types of debt right? You have the actual existence of code. Uh, That's one thing that needs to be maintained. Then there are the things that you didn't predict, like a bug, either a business issue, or it could be a security issue or a security concern. Uh, How have you kind of, like, how would, would you categorize debt differently?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an umbrella terminology of like technical debt. What is it? It's a, it's a risk could be like risk risk complexity, um, degrading of quality of your, of your software or the system. It's pretty much when you borrowing something like from the future productivity. So you're taking shortcuts to gain some productivity kind of immediately. So this is kind of technical debt. It's a, it's just an umbrella terminology, and you can you can bucket anything under this umbrella. You can put bugs, complexity, risk. You can put uh, external dependencies, unknowns. Pretty much anything on, under here.
0: So it's it's great, right? We're talking about technical debt, but I think it'd be helpful to help, like, to talk also about the effect it has on. A business. And I like the, in the post, in the post you on Pragmatic Lead, there's this nice chart that I think illustrates it well, where complexity is on the y-axis, and then uh, time goes along X. And there are these moments where as time goes on, or more it takes more time to complete work as the complexity also increases.
2: Right. Yeah. The,
1: the, the more you, you build the software or the longer your project lives, the, the more technical debt and complexity you accumulate. The more people you add to the team, the less context people have on the team, like what's going on. It's just hard to wrap your head around the, the big system. The longer it exists, the bigger it becomes. Um, people move uh, in and out from, like from the team or the product, the company, new people come in with less context. So they start kind of adding something new. Um, so the other team members kind of lose that context. So that complexity kind of builds and builds and builds. Uh, and over time you just accumulate more and more technical debt. Uh, and this is kind of what this, this diagram is trying to to show.
0: So curious, and, and you and I have seen this happen a lot. There's a tendency as a programmer or a leader coming into a, a new team and you're greeted with the applications and the software that were, was built by the people that came before you, is it kind of a knee-jerk reaction? Or is it fair to say you think that if I'm a new leader coming into a team, I'm, what, I'm, f- what it feels like to me is a whole lot of new debt that I have to contend with?
1: Always when you start a new, uh, a new team or a new product, always rebuild it from scratch.
0: <laughs> just, that is just, the kid- rule. <laughs> just kidding
1: <laughs> well that's uh that's uh <laughs> kind of the reaction or re- re- reflect way out right it's just like oh I, I i i'm faced with something new it's just easier to build it from scratch with something that i understand and know really well so if i join a team that i like that build something with uh i don't know like java spring boot and i've never worked with this technology before and it's like oh why don't we build it with Python or Node.js because I understand it so well and I know it can be more efficient. So I just need maybe six, twelve months to rebuild it. And that's that's what we like to do all the
0: time. But is it the right choice? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of um that's kind of the question, right? Is when do you when do you make that determination? Because rewrites, there are some companies that they have a policy where um they might release a version of an application and manage it or maintain it or have certain SLAs over the course of maybe three years. And then after five years of running that product, they understand that they need to basically burn it down and, and build something new to replace it. Right. So
1: and I, I want to I go back um, to, to, to think about this. I want to go back to your question, how do we measure technical debt? Because it all starts here, right? So you join a new team, and you're faced with this technical debt, and you're overwhelmed. And your team team is saying like, "Oh, it's just this is like emergency. We have to address it as soon as possible, or it would just collapse under its own weight, and we have to do something immediately." So how do you actually think about this? How do you how do you make the right decision? Of course, you want to trust your team but there's also a pressure and pushback from product and business like we just cannot afford to invest 6 8 months into just paying the technical debt and and, and just working on on technical issues. So how do you how do you go about this? How do you measure technical debt?
0: It's uh, so so what I do is for measuring te- like if you're asking me that question um there are a couple of things that I pay close attention to. For instance, uh, how when we're going into work in a place, what's the general motivation of the engineers? Okay, so sometimes you can hear gripes and moans. That was actually a point that Mike Mike Gertrude's had made in um, the first episode, where, for a, from a product owner's perspective, if they want to get a sense of where technical debt might reside, is to get the boots on the ground perspective by talking to the team. Like hey guys, like I'm thinking about doing this thing and or this is the feature we're going to execute on. How do you feel about that? and if general concerns start to emerge uh then you kind of get a sense of of what you're in for and that's that's a, at least one way to get a sense of whether or not there's debt around that should be looked at or evaluated um, because it's not easy, especially if you're like you or I, we've, we've inherited applications. A lot of times we're dealing with existing art and sometimes they're old. I mean, I've been on, I've been on systems that are 20 years old. And so to understand its capabilities fully, it's, it's, it's largely impossible, especially if the legacy or the staff or the engineers that had originally invented this, this product or application have, have long, long left. And now there's these very dark parts of the system that you'll probably never see and if you do for some reason or if there's a problem with it it's it's very hard to recover from those scenarios at least without um, without panicking at least um so that's that for me is one is to is to um if I'm not working on it myself because that's that for me is the most obvious i can I'll, if I'm perusing componentry, if I'm perusing patterns, I can. Uh, for in, if I'm in code review, I can. I'm looking for signs that there are detractors to common patterns between folks, and those could, those could, inflate the amount of debt that you're accumulating. Like there could be uh, two or three programmers on the team. Um, if your PRs are just being rubber stamped, that's that could be a sign that you have tech debt that's just accumulating. Um, but you can understand those from a leader's standpoint, if you know what decisions are being made, because then you can backfill training, talk to the team about it, invite refactoring. And, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead a bit into ways to mitigate or manage tech debt long-term. Uh, those are some of the things that I look for. Also, the other one is escalations, I think. How many escalations or bugs are introduced in a production? And then what I'll what I try to do is bucket those things. So for instance, if it's for e-commerce, you might have a price, a pricing inconsistency issue. And I try to pay attention to how often these issues emerge, like common issues. And those are the areas that I'll start kind of digging just a little bit into, say, like, well, what does this look like? What's in here? How are these decisions made? And then that starts to unravel or un, un- unveil itself as. Tech debt that's been either sitting around, it's been crufty, people have been kind of patching on top of it to hide it away or to try to um, quickly get something into production that it's you know, we call it hacks around the core issue, or if we're not addressing the core issue. Those are signs to me as to where tech debt is. Now that's, now how do you measure that? Right? What's the measurement, I guess, that you want to understand? So, going back to complexity and time, if the goal is to manage the complexity for the sake of keeping people productive, then we can look at PRs, we can look at commits, we can look at frequency of, um, we can use frequency of contribution or advancement in certain corners of an application or a product. Those could be ways to measure that. So, for instance. If you have a landing page or an e-commerce product and you have a list of items on it, or you have a, check, a checkout product, how long does it take your team to get a feature in a production? What does that look like? What is, your, what is your technical velocity? And if there are reasons or in a retrospective, if you're an Agile team, if during retro, you're saying, hey guys, how could we have done this better? How do we get our velocity up? And again, going back, going back to the engineers, they're saying, well, if we're able to clean up these few things, then we think we'd be able to move much faster. To me, sounds like the beginnings of something actually measurable.
2: Yeah, so I completely agree. Um, I like to think of, of this of
1: technical debt that's going kind to of break it down into two major categories one is on a technical side more kind of craftsmanship and complexity with with the code and architecture itself like looking from the engineering perspective like what's the technical debt and what effect it has on 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 engineers and the code base and then the business side what's the velocity can we estimate things uh properly can we deploy or ship our features to our users fast enough? So yeah, these are kind of two major categories of technical debt. And when I join a new team, or even on a on a on a team that I've been around for a long time, it's always you want to have this kind of three sixty overview of technical debt, not just think from like from the engineering perspective. Oh, we want to just work work with a cool latest tech and just refactor. Everything constantly just to catch up to the latest trends. That's, that's great. It, it has to exist, right? You want to keep engineers motivated and yeah, excited about things. Nobody wants to work with the old old technology, even, even though it's, it's fine. But not everybody wants to, to work on, with that. I think we had a chat uh in the past about angular versus react so maybe we can we can talk about that but then Uh, the other yeah but then the other um category is business right so you want to talk to engineers you definitely want to get their perspective you want to get them the seat at the table you want to make sure that their voice is heard for sure and then there's a business side you want to understand like what's the end goal with the software with the system it's Usually it's to generate some sort of business or provide some sort of value to the end user. So you want to understand what are the challenges? Are we moving fast enough? Of course, it's probably not going to be 100% satisfaction from the, like all the business and, and product uh, people want to do is move faster and, and ship faster for sure. But are there any opportunities? Can we, can we do something to kind of get ahead of product and business so we enable the business even more? Um, so, and kind of bridge those two sides together and kind of think about technical debt from, from that
2: point of view. I like, uh, I
0: like the way you bucket it. I think that's clearer than the way I described it. Um, but you're right. You have to, you have to segment those things. So I'm looking at your post and you mentioned making, making paying tech debt and I'm, and I can't wait to talk to you about frameworks, but so paying for tech debt. Paying tech debt to me sounds like, hey, I've, I've had an opportunity to refactor something or I replaced something. I dropped a dependency on a library or something I was using in my application. These things are going away and they no longer need to be a concern of mine. And once they're kind of gone or in pattern, they become simpler and easier to maintain. At the end of the day, right, we're just getting time back. We have fewer things we have to mentally or physically contend with. is that fair? yeah, it's one it's one of the uh, benefits, yeah. So now I'm looking at process, and once you have a sense of how to understand your technical debt, how do you get it into your the the daily hygiene of how you do work? I see here you you mentioned. Using ten to twenty percent is the most common ratio of feature to tech debt work, but in practice, it's never that clean. At least in in my experience, I've never seen that to be that clean. It in order to do that, I uh, it requires the active engagement of most of the stakeholders. You, the development staff, the management, and the engineers on the team. They need to be. They need to understand their contribution of communicating tech debt, because if they're not talking about it, what are they spending 10 to 20% of their time on? So what do you think about that? Well, first I think it's unacceptable. It has to be clean. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay. <Check. laughs>
1: not uh, good enough. Well, yes, not good enough. Of course, it's never going to be clean. Um, I, I've seen recently, I've seen the, uh, the analogy of like, I think technical debt as Tetris game, right? You Play Tetris, there's going to be gaps, but it's fine, you still can win the game or keep continuing,
0: keep playing the Wait, game. Is it is it a mode or B mode? <laughs> I don't know what that is. You don't know, <laughs> you can't use a Tetris analogy without knowing the different modes. So All right, I think, then, then I think we have a to. mode is you play forever until you fail, and B All right, mode let's, is let's play Tetris now <laughs> and find out. All um, right, I yeah, it's, your like,
1: it's, it's like think of a, like Tetris game, right? So there's going to be gaps and for the most part, it's fine. You still can keep playing, right, with like, some gaps in it. But if those gaps become too big, then game over. You have to start again. <laughs> um, so it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be mm-hmm. clean. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about solutions. So now we know how to measure technical debt, right? So you, you need to think about... Business technology kind of have this 360 overview of like what are you actually trying to accomplish with the with your, with your code with your system, what opportunities you're trying to to get or or create for the business and product, and what opportunities you're trying to create for engineering. It's not like really um, measurable, like to the point like where you can assign story points and and, and numbers to technical depth, but that would be ideal. Um, and we're, we're gonna get to solutions later, but that would be ideal when you try to get the technical debt prioritized and sell it to... Not sell it, but to get some buy-in from the product and business uh, and even engineering. You want to have some, um, some numbers, uh, something to back it up. So that's, that's, that's one. So once you have that, you understand like, what, what your priorities are and what you're trying to, to address. Uh, next is you actually need to figure out how to get it done. So the process, yeah, I talked about sprints, 20, 20 30% of, of every sprint, yeah. or 10, 20% of, of uh, every sprint, something like that, right? Yeah. So I've seen it, it's pretty common, like the team will put 10, 20%, 30%, whatever it is, of every sprint. They will have like technical technical stories, technical tasks to kind of constantly work on We're going to update this library, we're going to update this framework, we're going to refactor this part of the code, we're going to write this amount of unit tests because we skipped over because we had some deadline in the past. So constantly kind of trying to catch up because you're never going to be 100% clean without technical debt. So it's kind of baked into your process and it's agreed upon with your product and business beforehand, like 20% of our resources are going to be allocated to work on technical uh, technical work because otherwise we're just going to be in, 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 in trouble in the future if we don't do that.
0: See, that's, that's, the, that's the thing that I think is, it's, I think it's easier to say than, and I think it's harder to do. And here's, here's why. In order to do that well, the, you need, in my opinion, you need a distributed perspective of what debt is valuable to work on from the team and possibly the input of a manager or tech lead in order to actually set a priority. So if you're, you are chewing on 20% of the time to spend on tech debt, what's the most valuable stuff to chew on? And, that, and if you ask a team broadly, it might differ and there might be no opinion at all, uh, especially for if you're a new programmer coming in, all you're trying to do is close tickets and participate in being productive but you're not really too you don't really have any ideas of, you know, if I was going to ask that person, "Hey, if I get, you know, for 20% of the next sprint, what do you want to work on to pay off tech debt?" they're going to have a hard time giving me an answer for that. And so so while I think that's a good now the other the other thing I'm I'm going to throw out there too to to think about is we're chopping off or drawing a line between the business product and technology organization. We're saying that, look, product team, you don't have to be concerned with this. Just give us a black box and we'll call it 20%. And trust us, we're doing stuff that's meaningful. Right? So what do you have what what can you say about that? Like I I have an idea. I I would I would like to push it actually a little further. I will, I think that a healthy culture around tech debt is inclusive of the business and the product and not and it and it actually invites the question. This is something actually Frank said. Um in said episode that three
1: uh, or episode two.
0: Yeah. Where he's um he described I I've liked it, he invited the product team to to weigh in on what they thought a good build time was. And as, te- as a as te- as a technical organization, a lot of times I see us hiding the pain away from business and product instead of inviting them in to help us manage it effectively. What do you what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying with the business side of technical debt. You want to understand what they actually trying to accomplish, what what we are trying to accomplish, but they specifically from the from the business and product side, what what velocity they want to have, how fast they want to get to, to market, uh, what opportunities there are that we are not taking advantage because we have this limitation on a technical side. So you want to understand that. You want to work with with your stakeholders to understand like what are we actually trying to accomplish with the software.
0: Do you have an example where you were successful with making that connection between tech debt and the business objectives that you thought you actually made that connection?
2: Yep. Um, I have many of
1: them. Um, so let, let's see. Let's say migration, like the, I think we talked about transformation and migrations and, and big refactors um, with Frank on episode two. So I, let, let's use that example. So when you're migrating something and, and I've had this big migration project from, from, um, from Angular to React in, in uh, I think like two years ago. and Actually, product was the biggest advocate for that project. Like product managers were the biggest advocate. They went to CTOs and CEOs and uh, advocated on on our behalf, on a technical, on an engineering behalf to actually get this project funded and allocate some time and resources to work on it. Because we both found so much value in, in this migration that they thought it would probably benefit the product the most. And some of the benefits were the um, responsive design. So taking advantage of of components, reusability, velocity, the performance of the web application. So we could do some interesting stuff with Webpack, lazy loading, and uh, code splitting, and things like that. Uh, Progressive web application. So there's like so much we could do. And thankfully, product understood all those benefits. with engineering, so it wasn't just pushed from the engineering side, so that was a really good example of collaboration and and with with the product to to get it adv- to take advantage of, of software to to ship the software and the features faster. so that was
0: that was a great example. So uh, well, congratulations, and I felt that product wind in the technical sales before. And it's you're right there's once you've made that connection um follow-up question uh because I think it's it's fascinating once you've once you've made or established an initial connection with your product stakeholders uh, do you find that they more they more or less are looking for more th- work like that later on uh,
1: you mean product
0: yeah like are they do you think that it gives them or gives more people and I, and I know I know we're using the term product because we work with we, we work with product people a lot but in my opinion I think once once I find a win there's probably more wins to be had that I just don't understand yet and so I might I might ask more questions
1: sure i mean there's always going to be more opportunities but you need to find that balance. Like the balance is always a key, right? You don't want to like chase all that latest technology all the time. You want to like do incrementally. You want to build something and get the value. So you want to reass- be reassured that there's a actually value and you're getting something back from from your investment. You invested uh, something or resources and time into that latest technology, into migration, into refactoring, and you want to get the value out of it. You want to kind of prove that it's actually faster. The performance is actually faster. You want to prove that the velocity of engineering team is actually better. You can move faster. You can actually reuse those components. Can you actually prove that when, when the work is done? Are you actually successful? Stop, then stop and, and kind of look back to retrospective and look, look ahead again, like look six, 12 months ahead and, and think what the market and kind of user base will be like, what the um, what opportunities we'll have in the future that we can start building towards now. So it's not always just catching up with the latest technology. It's actually thinking about the product, thinking about the users, thinking about the market.
0: When you get a new application, how do you avoid having to like that knee-jerk reaction to rebuild all of the things?
1: I guess my experience is that rebuild, rebuilding things and I've done, I've made those mistakes. Rebuilding things is not always going to solve all your problems. In fact, it's going to introduce even more problems because you're going to start uncovering so much complexity in the old system, in the legacy system that you're going to be so surprised that um, the uh, new greenfield project will not be enjoyable as much. Because when you commit to that refactoring, even when you commit to that migration transformation, there will be pressure. There will be a lot of ice on you. There will be some expectations to deliver fast and actually deliver new promises. And you never know. Okay. You never know 100% that those promises will be true when you deliver the new software. That's why it's, it's, a, it's a big risk to do that.
0: Yeah. I don't know how many times it was, oh, the, re, the, new, the new thing is done. Let's turn it on And all of a sudden the performance isn't so good. And I don't mean performance from application runtime perspective. I mean it from like a business perspective. It's not performing what's going on. And that puts, there's at times uh, a long tail discovery process of features and patches or these little corner features that you didn't, you never saw before pop up and exist that now you have to contend with. And now you have sometimes... uh, an unpredictable timeline of additional investment and now your stakeholders are like what gives i thought this was only going to be a 2 month thing or a 3 month thing but now it's 6 months and now you're telling me you don't know or why is it not performing as well you told me it was going to perform it was going to perform better so yeah i mean after going through i think sometimes you have to face that several a couple of times before you realize it's you know what maybe maybe it's not Actually, worth it because we can't get our arms around it. But that actually puts me into the mode back to the conversation we we're having a couple days ago about um, you were giving me some feedback on Angular JS, and for the record, it's not my favorite thing. However, well, it used uh, to be sometimes <laughs> it used to be. I used to yeah, like yeah. it a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah, right. Like we went to what was it? It was Fluent conf where it was, where Backbone was all po- like super popular. And Angular was um, was the bigger option, and uh, that that fluent comp that year, they were like Angular JS is the way, and so we all went that way. And what was it like? Maybe three months later, when we learned that none of the things that we've been doing are going to stay the same, mm-hmm. yeah. so you better get ready to eject. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, oh, why? Um, so that's kind of uh, that's almost like your your you said this in your post when you're you're going out in open source, you're, you're taking, you are taking a risk, you're moving a bit faster, you're taking advantage of the work of others. But at the same time, you are adding the risk of the future of that work. You're signing up for that either, or you're a company that forks the thing or makes a copy of the dependency and uses it on their own, which is different. You're kind of taking ownership of, of the future of that thing. However, there's a lot of software still built in AngularJS. That solves good problems. I've worked on some of these systems, and the conversation we were having was, um, you know, when do you when do you kind of drop ship and make that decision to that's that large where you're going to completely you're going to literally build a whole new thing, or you're going to try to smush the new thing into the old thing a little bit. Maybe you're going to use the strangler pattern. Maybe you'll, you'll build facades. But largely, you have to make this decision to kind of cut over. My, my argument is, if you're making your goals and you can make the current system tolerable and people productive, why then would I, would I make the change? Why would I then ask my CTO for the time or my leader or stakeholders for the time to build, rebuild it all in and react again? If I'm already making my, my immediate KPIs or objectives, even though as a technologist, I know it could be even better.
1: Yeah. So to answer your question, I want to go back to uh, add one more thing to um, uh, measuring technical debt. One major red flag for me when I join a new team or just working on any product is that when, my, when the team cannot estimate accurately or at least, at least approximately how long things are going to take and the team constantly misses deadlines because complexity is so big that they cannot actually say beforehand how long things are going to take, it's, it, it creates a lot of uncertainty for product and business. Like We don't know how much investment we need to make in terms of deliver any of the features. So it becomes a big big unknown and it, it's bad. And I feel like that's what was happening with Angular and that was one of the reasons why we wanted to migrate to React. It's one of the reasons because the code became so complex, complex complicated. Some half or more of the team members left or switched to another teams and other products. So we were losing that context all the time. So, it was getting into the into kind of the stage where it was pretty much unpredictable. We had production issues, uh, lack of unit tests, and we were facing, like you said, uh, of the choice to rewrite everything in either Angular 2 because it was not backwards compatible, or React. So, rewrite w- would, would have to happen no matter what. So at that point... You have to make a decision. What are you going to rewrite in? Are you going to rewrite in Angular 2 or React in that case? But in general, um, like Angular React aside is that it's probably not and this is from my, my personal experience, it's probably not a great idea to re- re- rewrite everything from scratch. Like just take the whole thing and rewrite it from scratch. It's probably a bad idea. I, I like it now. I like it to do, to do it in, uh, in stages um or in kind of components and like i know microservices is a hot topic it's um it's debatable whether it's good or not but at least microservices like if you think microservices you can decouple your system and start kind of rebuilding components so take authentication rebuild it and ship it right then connect it through like some um sort of um service mesh or http or or some some something along those lines so it's probably more sustainable and um predictable model it's like just decouple your big uh system and do it in 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 phases and in stages and in, and in, in components so it's more kind of predictable and gives you kind of that immediate validation or feedback loop
0: but that's not always easy right i think the um so the angular js story you have it seems like you have to be a little more aggressive sometimes. So I know, so we kind of pushed this, uh, okay, we'll start building, we'll start building components, React components, and rendering them in our Angular JS application. But it, start, it gets worse sometimes before it gets better. And then sometimes you have to, you have to make a, a decision as to when you're going to cut over to the new thing, especially when you're kind of mashing things together in that way. So you have some code componentry that can live long term but then it's all mixed up in this thing that's just not it's not good and 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 I mean good from the from the perspective of you're actively adding debt at the same time as trying to migrate for instance rendering react components in angular js that's a it's doable but I mean I was seeing um just all these uh either deferments to render, um, what's React responsible for what's ang- versus what's Angular responsible for. The, the design principles were largely different. For instance, uh, Angular JS largely depended on references, and then they had this dirty digest, while React has this one directional thing. And, and so activities in one tool would invoke things in another. So in that example, I mean, while it was possible to kind of do things incrementally, it was at the same time making the the system you relied on worse on its own and even more difficult to maintain for the benefit of starting to build these components that you hoped would some at some point eat away at the system that was surrounding them yeah so i would never i easy. would invite you i would invite you to add option 3 right option 1 is uh, redo all of the things and commit to it. Option two is incrementally try to, to sort it out. Option three, uh, strategically evaluate the, the, the shape of the application and to establish standards and patterns that would help you work or start to get time back or predictability back into the current system. And that was, the, that was the thing that we were talking about before was I felt like I achieved that in an older framework where I wasn't so much encouraged by, like I would probably slice up a migration like that much differently now. I would look for larger pieces that I can replace. Not the whole thing, bigger things that I can say, this is a unit, this is a closed scope, and it's not going to blend or mix with these other things and I can keep that safe and pristine. And if people are working in there, they don't also have to contend with all of the other complexity. But you could also steal patterns from modern tools and solutions and see how they fit into your system or use those things to kind of change how you work day to day or draft tickets or refactoring strategies to get you into a place where there's patterning and leverage for a programmer to better understand what it is that goes into working on a legacy application or an application, well, legacy, and I think uh, it's the money-making software right yeah and
1: episode three yeah we talked about this uh, a bit yeah so don't call your legacy code a legacy code because that's the code that pays your bills that's right <laughs> and uh, and i and i said it in my in my post um most of the world still runs on java 8 There was a really popular blog post by um forgot the person's name but i linked it in, in my blog post that while we all like to talk about golang and and rust and all these latest uh frameworks and languages most of the world most of the software still runs on java 8 it's old boring technology but it gets the job done
0: that's right well i love that too a lot of so that's kind of interesting a lot of companies nowadays i hear and even managers i'm I'm talking to from various businesses they're kind of on this mad dash to change over to go like, what do you think of that? Is that it sounds ambitious, it sounds exciting as a technologist, but it also sounds really expensive. And not only from the, like the operational po- point of view of, I mean, op- actually operationally, it's more interesting than some of the other stuff, maybe even cheaper. But that detail aside, there aren't a lot of Go programmers out there. And these companies are actually investing in training people to write Go. How the heck do you think that was sold to a stakeholder? that we're gonna build a university around a language to support it? Well, it's hype and a lot of people like to kind of jump on the bandwagon
1: and kind of write and and because it's exciting, it's new. Like everybody likes Tesla and and excited about Tesla. I don't like Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I like how it drives. It's it's a great, awesome car. But it just—I don't know. And I may—I may one
0: day own a Cybertruck, but
1: yeah, it just doesn't feel like um, a car that's worth eighty thousand dollars. Yeah, it's just not. It's—it's. I don't think it's worth it. There's a lot of negatives about the car, and I I Mm. tested it. I, I rented the car for my road trip, and I didn't like it. So yeah, maybe hype is not worth you know your investment. Not always. So, maybe that Golang or Rust is is that Tesla is that everybody talks about and excited about. But when you actually try it, when you migrate to it, maybe it's not
0: as great as they, as they said it would. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, su- I suspect there must be a really big... like. So, if I was going to measure that and if I was going to sell you on, hey, Alex, I want to rebuild all of our products using Go or Rust, actually. I would I'd be excited as hell. Like, I'd be, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. But like, right, we pay our own bills. So
2: we know (laughs) what that is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's probably a reason why companies and and businesses uh, do that. Um, There's a lot of hype. And one of the reasons why we like to keep the technologies up to date and and upgrade and use the latest and greatest and use kubernetes and and invest in in the cloud and service mesh and all this kind of complexity i think it's a it's a it's a talent attraction right people want to work with the latest technology so if you had a let's say as an engineer john you interview in two companies, right? Company A and Company B. Company A gives you the offer and they use React, they use Node.js, they use GraphQL, they use Golang, they use Rust. They are on, on uh, Azure or Google Cloud or AWS. They used all the latest Kubernetes. It's all kind of figured out. They have like great people who understand that. They can teach you that. You can get that experience. And Company B gives you exactly the same offer. But they use they use Angular. They use Java eight. They are on prem. You have to kind of manage your own ser- servers. It's 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 a bit outdated. It's a bit old. It's a, it's a bit more conservative. But you know the the offer is the same. So as an engineer, with which company you would choose?
0: I mean the, the the I mean for me it's obvious. I would go with the folks that are more on the edge. They're more up to date and they're not kind of lagging behind. There's, and, and the reason why is, there's, the, to me, there's, there's a connection between the business and the technology. And if technology is lagging really far behind, that means that the business and product objectives are overwhelming the capabilities of what technology might, might be able to accomplish. And so there, there's, to me, that's a sign that there's a culture rift in there. And there are conversations that have not yet been had. And for that reason, right, because I would ask the question, I would, I might, I would might even go back to the legacy folks and are the folks that are having a hard time keeping their tech up to date or paying tech debt. I think it's more appropriate and say, well, what's the, and this is a question that I I like to ask folks, folks, what's your appetite for change? How do you communicate business value? How engaged are these these teams? Because I am also not the kind of person that would avoid a challenge, right? So I don't need to. I'm at the point now in my career where I feel like if I need to write a React thing, I can do that. If I need to stand up a full stack thing, I can do that. But I can also help a company move from a legacy state to a modern state. I've. I mean most of my career has been doing that, about doing that. So I wouldn't back down from if 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 I felt that there was support within the company. So then at that point I'm looking at well what's the brand? How is the product positioned? Which product am I more interested in? Because that should also I think play a part. For instance if you're going to you know do something that's going to your job is going to push you way back in the back corner and you're not really going to have an impact or you know the the other company is going to give you a broader responsibility, where you have to gradually provide education, help people along, and that is much more interesting because that's going to challenge me a lot more than just going in and kind of digging into the easy stuff that I know is going to work, that I know is going to be easier to grok because there's been time that's been put in to make it simpler and more approachable. So I just want to I, right. I would play both both ways. I think it's easy to pick the place that's up to date. But also if the if the legacy company was understood that they have real change they need to make for the benefit of advancement, that's also I think very admirable and worth considering.
1: Right. So in, usually the company A is never is never the 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 um, the modern company is never that modern. Usually the it's a story, they tell you. We are right. going into the cloud. We are migrating to Kubernetes. So it's a, it's a, like you said, it's a sign that the company is willing to take a risk and willing to make an investment in a technology. And the company B is, is not willing to, to take risks. Um, I think you, you said that before, like if, it, if Angular works, why would you need to migrate to React? Same, same kind of mindset, right? If it's working, why would you, why would you change anything about this? Right. Well, sure. Yeah, and that's kind of like from the candidate point of view is that that's concerning because as a as an engineer, it's kind of like why people get into engineering, software engineering in the first place.
0: Well, well, wait a minute, because okay, because now you're saying that the decision to not change something because we can maintain it. So it sounds like what you're saying is you're looking at the decisions, and if we can actually manage our debt or manage an application that's probably using a language or a framework that's a bit older. But it's not causing any pain you would still count that as disengagement from advancement
1: well yes and no the the answer is usually more complicated than just just yes or no would you give you an example would you go and work for the company that uses um what's the pre-jquery um libraries
0: oh pre-jquery
1: yeah yeah something or even like J, early jquery jquery was. mobile jquery ui things like that sure of course yeah. it's gonna work of course it's, you still can build ui on top of it but should mm-hmm. you should you i mean it's maybe maybe um if if let's say what's the the earlier version of, of java or even like php not the latest mm-hmm. php but the early kind of versions like it still works probably Mm-hmm. Right. But should you or should you upgrade it to the latest version of Java? Not the latest, latest, but maybe like Java 8 or Java 11, where you can take advantage of a lot of the new
2: stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, assuming right? that application, those features are relevant to the, to the goals of the application that's being built. Well,
1: it's, it's relevant. And also, can you actually innovate on top of what the language provides you? Like, can you take advantage of the Lambda functions in, in Java? Can you do mm-hmm. some interesting stuff with functional programming without, you know, just going old school and building everything, you know, as a class, as object-oriented? Object I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying there's probably a newer, more efficient, better ways to do things. And if you kind of at least, at least you know, approximately trying to catch up with, uh, with the latest tech and you better off than just be stuck with whatever version you started and just stuck there because you can.
0: Well, let me let me give you like I'm going to I don't i not hearing it quite yet because I I understand what you mean. I think it's really easy to pick on the decisions of the past as oh, you're kind of stuck there. Um, but unless you have real pain, and the programmers are going like, this is just not working, and to the chart, if the time becomes unpredictable, but if you're still in a very predictable state, I would argue that that's that might not be the right way, especially if you're a small tech team and you have a lot of, a lot of different types of things you're trying to do or promote or put out there. It's probably better to spend that time elsewhere. Now, unless, for instance, you have something that just isn't maintained any longer. And AngularJS is a good example. And you know the further you go away, you you detract from that, the longer you wait, the less support you're going to have. And that's a real business per, business reason, I think, is that the amount of people actively working on that technology, that pool is actively diminishing. And you need to think about what your position is going to be in the next three years so that you can... And I know it's a relevance thing, but you you want to be in a position where you have the tools in place, not only that people are willing engage in, but that are act actually relevant and relevant from the perspective of that there's a community behind it that's still working on it, that the documentation is still improving, and that those those are the those are the things that I think also are are ways to talk about the value proposition of. Doing something that that's that's that heavy, but at the same at the same point in time, you know, if you have all right, we are, we have some software that's using some legacy stuff like handlebars, right? And and those things still work, and that software still works. But if we were going to rebuild that, like, do we do we spend the time now to rebuild all of those features, you know, with React and uh, progressive web application stuff, or? Or do we build the stuff that closes the feature gaps to make the application relevant?
2: Right.
1: Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, I I agree. Uh, it's not always about what the latest technology you use, and if if it gets the job done, maybe you shouldn't. All I'm saying is that. Part of look, one of the reasons why companies try to upgrade to the latest technology is not only to meet the business requirements and, and create opportunities for, for the business and product, but also to attract people. If company has to hire a lot of people, they will have a bigger pool of people, like you said, pool of people that are familiar with that technology that they can hire from. If they use something old, outdated not maintained, it's just going to be much, much more difficult to find people. And it's a challenge.
0: So now looking back at Go and Rust now, like how is that, right? These, they're not known as the most popular languages currently. Mm-hmm. And any company, at least today, that's interested in adopting these technologies are also buying the education of the staff that are engaging in and working with it. What's the yep. value proposition?
2: Well, I cannot answer that question because I haven't had
1: experience with Rust on, and Go and and specifically these languages, so I don't I cannot say why, but I would say it's part of it is is the hype and people, a lot of people are excited about this and a lot of people when they see Rust or Go on their job rack, they are more probably more willing to to join that company because it shows the company mindset and culture is to be more modern, right? To invest and take risks in in technology.
0: I like that. So, okay. So, there's, there's, I don't want to call it the sales pitch, but you want to have at least a little bit of risk with, or maybe it's not risk, but you want to be a little more liberal in some areas, not too liberal, but a little bit, just enough to tell the world that we are experimenting with these technologies. We're looking at them. We're considering them seriously. And it very well could be a part of your career or exposure while you're working with us. But at the same time, um, like how do you, these really big, right? When it's very big and it's very aggressive, I have a hard time swallowing that pill when we're going com- to completely change the language that we're writing with. I mean, look at how expensive it was to get out of um, if you're writing JavaScript, uh, version five, ES5, ECMAScript version five versus version six, there are still people that struggle with understanding the differences between keywords, some some of the keywords in the language. And that was expensive. So now if we're gonna take those same people and say, okay, we're gonna take, we're actually gonna give you a completely different language to create stuff with, I have a really hard time with, at least without. Strategically applying it, like I look at Rust, I look at I look at languages and runtimes like Rust as um, beneficial for the cloud era. Reason being is the footprint is much smaller, and you can get a lot more process power out of that application or out of that runtime. And I, I would say Go is is absolutely a parallel to that. And so while we're the future of operations, at least in the way we're going with the cloud era, is invested in this whole. Paying for compute on somebody else's hardware, but they're going to bill me for either by minute, by process, what have you. I want the biggest bang for my buck out of whatever I've selected for how uh, efficient the underlying system can can run. Does that make sense?
2: Yep. And that would
0: probably be my the only. Um, actually, that's what I'm really most interesting but that's not all of the systems that's maybe 10 percent of them you know maybe yeah. the ones that are you know um low latency you know a lot cool. of events so, going on so uh, how many languages do you speak uh as many as i want uh, as long as i
1: can understand them <laughs> <laughs> so i speak three languages um and i understand i understand like one, so it's like three and a half languages, right? So, and I use the wait, language- Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait. You speak three languages, but you understand one. No, no, and I,
1: just, I, I understand one, but I don't speak it. So, it's like three and a half
0: languages. Oh, oh right? I see. So, you can- and I, use, in- and I use the
1: language when it's appropriate. When I go to a certain country, I use that language because I can speak it. I don't speak English hmm. in that country because people in that country don't speak English, right? Right. Same with, I feel like, programming languages. You use the language- when it's appropriate so you wouldn't rewrite everything in go or rust but you would pick a component that needs like like you can you want us to kind of squeeze that performance and you want to optimize it so much that you would like to like choose rust or go to just take everything out of that software and kind of have like the max performance out of it so yeah i I, I kind of i think uh, this way is like pick the right language for the job
0: The right tool for the job, and sometimes, sometimes, it's a decision you have to make to pay off some tech debt. You have something that's just not meeting its performance requirements. Maybe you need to chop it out or create a new service out of something. And uh, one of the determining factors of how you're going to address it might be the language you use. See, to me, that's that that sounds like a a the combination of uh, a conversation I can have with a business team. To talk about you know i can connect performance with dollars and cents but to justify like a complete overhaul mm-hmm. yeah that's, just, and, and that's kind of going back to the, the
1: example of like migrating from angular to react and, and working with product and that's why the product was so excited about the uh the migration because there was some value for them the React, in this case, not the language, but the, the, the library, uh, client-side library, was more appropriate for that, for that reason, uh, for that purpose, just to get the performance, get the velocity, reuse some of the components um, on the front end. So it was just so, so perfect fit for that specific use case that you know the, not only engineering, but also product was excited about the migration. So you need to find that kind of match between like what's the pain point, what problems and opportunities you're trying to solve and, and create, and what would be the right tool for that job? Is it is it maintaining what you have already and investing that, knowing that long-term, it's just not going to stick around. Long-term, it's just not going to cut it because in the future, we're going to have even more demands, even more opportunities that we, we need to solve. So you need to think on a future, it's like do we maintain what we have now or do we start the migration plan and strategy and kind of piece by piece, we start migrating into something different that will give us more
2: opportunity long-term.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. How do you start... So, it's not... um, Technology is kind of a... Is literally a black box for a lot of folks. And for having a mixed bag of stakeholders, how how do you navigate or what are the big... So we talked about predictability, cost of new features, um, bugs in production, predictability, scalability, I guess, performance. What other kind of factors or levers do you use to communicate the value of paying technical debt?
1: Uh, did we talk about stability? Like if, you're, if your product, oh, no, I don't think the system breaks in production all the time, it's, uh, it's a problem. Right. A lot of the times, even though we like to talk about test-driven development and the value of unit tests and, and uh, integration tests, from my experience, it's rarely the case. One of the problems in, in, uh, in our industry is deadlines. Tight deadlines are always the problem. And if given the tight deadlines, people are going to cut corners, right? It just, it just mm-hmm. it happens all the time. It it's like small companies, big companies, any company, testing is the problem.
0: I, I agree with that. But I also think that it's necessary. And, and, I, and I get that whenever it's like, oh, yeah, I, I need you to build this feature or work on said thing. Great. When do you need it by? Uh, four weeks from now, three weeks from now. That initial anxiety sets in, mostly because even though we know how the tools work and how everything is set up there's still discovery that's yet to be had and that's the the fear of the unknown you can't help but to consider that and yes you you will cut corners but i've also been i've also been motivated by a deadline a deadline's helped me understand what are the what what can i fit into this increment in a way that's going to meet the immediate objective and, and that's helped me Largely make sure that I get something over the line that a customer can actually use versus coming to the end of a certain period of time and saying like, we went through this before, right? With, um, with Classmate, it was, uh, when can we get to a point where people, we can start getting people using this thing? And how long did that end up being? I don't know, five years, (laughs) five years. (laughs) I mean, it wasn't quite five years, but it was, it was a long time. Yeah. We spent a long, long time. Um, and then we ended up learning something later that, uh, you know, we weren't even, we had so many features, uh, built in thinking that they were, they were going to be necessary. and, And, and they, they largely weren't, the client was like, Hey, just give us, you know, if we have just like a box where I can drop things into and kind yeah. of organize them, that'd be enough for me. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a bit
1: different problem conversation of like the like when do you actually ship your product? So it's it's important for early stage startups and 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 companies who are trying to launch something new. But when you're actually dealing with established business from product, and you have this deadline, it's like. Okay, we're gonna have a press release or marketing campaign launched in three months, and we you, like they've given the engineering team a quarter to build something. And in order to meet that deadline, engineers cut corners and they, you know, just just the the software, the code is so sloppy and no unit tests, just to meet the deadline. That's a problem. So sometimes slowing down is is actually will get you further, right? Over time, uh, sometimes gonna like slowing down and, and taking things kind of step-by-step step and addressing technical debt along the way, running unit tests will get you further because the, the code will be more stable. It will be covered with unit tests. It will be less complicated. It will be properly built and architected. So yeah, that's, that's kind of... Um, so stability, back, going back to stability. Stability is one of the red flags when it, it actually tells you there is a, there is a technical debt.
0: Um, I agree with that, but I would also add that those practices, like writing tests, for instance, gives feedback back to the people building the software faster, so they can act on it sooner. And a lot in a lot of ways, it's much it's less cost to the bottom line to address them up, address issues up front than they are to go through the whole ceremony of getting the thing into production, having customers hit the thing, and having your customers discover the problem then you're chasing an issue. And now you're completely disrupting your, what you originally set out that you thought you were going to spend time on. And now you have to go back. right? You're not going forward anymore. You're going back. That's why what I like so much about um, using Pivotal Tracker is when you have a bug, it's a detractor to your velocity. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm working with folks, they like to point bugs. It's like, no, point, you don't get credit for that right? You don't get credit for fixing a bug. That's debt you added and we didn't do the right thing. And and actually what's interesting, what I'm seeing most recently is even at build time for doing builds, the faster we can get people feedback that something is there's something they need to pay attention to, the faster they can respond, the more stable the product becomes and we keep moving forward. And sometimes I think we make the mistake of Just by having software that does uh, something that we said we'd like it to do is success. And while it does, it is you know that's a big part of it. But if you can't flip it around and advance on it and keep up with the demand of your customers without constantly paying back, right, or being chewing on debt or chasing bugs or dealing with escalations in the middle of the night, and while you can never get rid of all of those things if you don't have that healthy balance of keeping up with them and establishing a not a perfect i don't think a, you can ever have a perfect working culture and i don't think that's the right like 100% test coverage i would argue is a myth and we can talk about that another time and there's you know finding the real dollars and cents value out of that but hardening you know the things that you know are going to be living long periods of time that you depend on a lot and do are responsible for Maybe a large majority of the compute that's happening in your in a in a given system, those are the places that you really kind of strive for those types of metrics. But aside from the, those edge cases, um, and then and definitely take when I say edge cases with a grain of a big grain of salt. Those are the that's where I think the value is, and also keeps that feedback loop coming in from for the people that's building the stuff and getting them the information they need sooner protecting your customers from the human errors that we tend to create. And that's just going to be natural.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the definition of technical debt. Like you skip unit tests, you borrow from future productivity. You actually harming your future yeah. productivity because you're going to have more issues in the future.
0: All right, Alex, uh, any closing thoughts?
1: All right. So any any other advice we can, we can give um, to kind of think... About technical debt or minimize technical debt. Anything else you'd like to
0: to add? Uh, I would. I mean, yeah. I think I think largely looking holistically over where programmers are spending their time, because that's who that's where the debt. You can see a lot of the debt. Um, the understanding your what kind of what kind of defects are hitting your customers. How is your practice giving feedback to your programmers sooner? And what's your how are you able to communicate or establishing a connection between the debt and your software to your product and business teams. And then from the product perspective, having an open mind to the development staff that there are problems that you might not be able to see and to ask questions um, and keep an open mind to how paying tech debt could ultimately affect your bottom line.
1: Yeah. And I would like to add that use business requirements as an opportunity to align yeah. with with business and product to, uh, to kind of align with your technical goals, don't go against business uh, requirements and business uh, initiatives. Go with them. It will be much easier to kind of go together, hold hands, go together, sing songs. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's much
1: song. yeah, it's much easier to get uh, to get uh, buy in from from leadership from from your Kind of business uh, partners um, to invest just a little bit extra to address technical debt as you build those features. and we talked about that with uh, with Frank on episode two. It's like just just use business as your um, as your friend in, in these conversations on so that. And also uh, I have a lot more covered in, in my in my blog post on pragmatic Lead. so go there pragmaticlead.com and you can read uh, read more on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Also, we did plug a number of other episodes and content related. So for those listening, if you're interested, uh, you can find those resources either in the show notes uh, or on pragmatically.com or in anywhere we, we publish a podcast. Uh, all right, Alex, thanks for hanging out, man. All right. Thanks. All right. See you later. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Pragmatic Lead Podcast. If you found this conversation interesting or helpful, we would appreciate your feedback. If you want even more content like what you just heard, check out PragmaticLead.com. If you have a story to tell, send an email to PragmaticLead at gmail.com and someone will be in touch. Thanks again.